Hello and welcome to today's COVID law briefing brought to you by the Public Health Law Watch and supported by This Week in Health Law. Thanks as always to Faith Colleague and Bethany Saxon, our intrepid producers, and to our tech lead today, Charles Strong from the Network for Public Health Law. It's a group effort. We really appreciate it. Very happy today getting a chance to ask some big questions about some big issues to one of our great public health law authorities in C. Wiley. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased uh, to be part of this fantastic group effort and really thankful to Faith uh, and to you and to all the others who have made it possible. Well, so I had this really fantastic title for this uh, session. I mean, fantastic as academic briefing titles go, the the law of unlocking. But I, I, I'm i not so sure you think that's a great title. Well, so I, I think I've found the media's use of this general term lockdown um, to be unhelpful, at least from a legal standpoint. Uh, people have been using it to refer to a wide range of things, including business closures, school closures, and stay-at-home orders, restrictions on personal movement, uh, restrictions on travel, gathering bans. And that can be helpful as shorthand, but uh, from a legal standpoint, I think it's really important to parse those different types of orders. I think the other thing that's tricky about thinking of this as being locked down or being unlocked is that that suggests there's some kind of switch that we flip um, and that we all just go back to normal. And I think even in the, the states where governors have been far less cautious, Cautious. Even in those states, they're they're not suggesting that we'll have that flip a switch approach. I think it's really helpful to follow the the CDC framework, which has sort of quietly been hanging out on their website for over a month, but but is in contradiction to the White House guidelines, which really describes this as as more like a ladder, and that we move up or down a rung at a time to impose tighter or looser restrictions depending on conditions on the ground in any any given local area. Two weeks. Ago ago when we were slotting this discussion, I think I was envisioning that it, we'd have spent, be having to spend a lot of time on the federalism elements of going up and down the ladder, You know that we would see variation and that New York would be looser on some points than Rhode Island would be, or that you know Illinois and Indiana might differ. And the question would be, how do you how do you kind of harmonize that kind of behavior? And what, you know, if, if New York thinks Rhode Island is too incautious, what can Rhode Island do? But it turns out, as we get today, that there's a very different set of federalism concerns and completely unexpected. We now have the president tweeting that states would liberate. Um, and we've just today or yesterday had the attorney general say that the administration might actually go to court against states that don't sufficiently liberate their populations. Can you help us unpack some of that? Well, I think the messaging at the federal level is remarkably, but not surprisingly, inconsistent between the CDC and the White House and even between what the White House is putting out in writing and what the president is tweeting and what uh, the president and Attorney General Barr are saying on, on talk shows. If you look at the CDC guidelines, they're actually fairly cautious. They're not particularly useful, though, if we lack information about levels of community transmission because our testing is, is so inconsistent and so limited that the reported case numbers aren't reliable. If you look at the White House guidelines, they are less cautious. The White White House guidelines have never recommended um, that everyone stay at home. The White House guidelines have never recommended closures of all non-essential businesses. If you look at those guidelines, they really don't reflect where the vast majority of states are right now. Even in cautious states, the White House guidelines um, go less far than, than some of the red state governors have gone uh, with orders that are currently in effect. 
I think the president's tweets about uh, really encouraging protests are wildly inappropriate. I think Attorney General Barr's statements have potentially been misinterpreted. I, I read him to be saying not that that DOJ would file suit against states, but that DOJ would potentially file statements of interest in suits brought by private parties on civil liberties grounds. I think if we're going to see that, I, I think it would be likely to be politically motivated to kind of throw a bone to, for example, religious freedom organizations who are filing suit in, in several jurisdictions, potentially even gun rights organizations where there are active suits pending. I don't think we're likely to see DOJ weigh in and in favor of the plaintiffs in the abortion coronavirus cases that are pending uh, in many jurisdictions. What'll be interesting about that is that the, the fundamental legal question about the standard of review that applies and whether there should be suspension of ordinary judicial review in a crisis um, really shouldn't vary depending on whether we're talking about abortion rights, gun rights, or personal liberty to be outside our homes or, or gather. But I could foresee the DOJ uh, taking a position that that uh, compartmentalizes the the rights that it favors from the rights that it doesn't. Well, so let me try and get to the to know what what we should be thinking about as mattering and what the big stories are going to be. I mean, clearly one of the scary things about living through this is that the performing aspect of government leadership has far outstripped the performance aspect. So does does this performance of federal interference with state decisions have any legal significance? Is it going to matter, do you think, in the court? I think one way in which the federal disconnect between CDC guidelines and White House guidelines and, and you know, posturing is going to matter in the courts is that in other crises in, you know, Ebola, H1N1, Zika virus, the states really appreciated a, a degree of cover that they got from um, CDC guidelines at the federal level. Those guidelines might be wholly voluntary, but even voluntary guidelines are almost function as an informal kind of safe harbor in the courts for the states. Judges are very deferential to state and local governments in these kind of challenges and they, but they feel more comfortable with that deference if they can say, look, you know, the state of Maine was following or not following CDC guidelines. The fact that those CDC guidelines conflict with White House guidelines, uh, the fact that the CDC guidelines assume levels of information that are not available on the ground leaves states more vulnerable in some ways to challenges. And I think it also leaves judges more uncertain about how to proceed. And I think it's actually possible that one of the reasons we're seeing judges, both the Fifth Circuit, uh, a New Hampshire trial judge, and in some other cases, rely on what I view as a, a very problematic suspension approach to say essentially that, for example, in the abortion cases, the Casey undue burden standard is suspended in a crisis and replaced by what they describe as Jacobson's emergency standard of review. I think every everything about that is, is troubling. Um, and, and I argue strongly in favor of ordinary standards of review, which I think are built to accomplish accommodate exigencies and to accommodate deference uh, to decisions that are made based on less than perfect information uh, in real time. No, I very much appreciated your and, your and Steve Vladek's analysis last week in the Harvard Law Blog, which we, which we plugged here on the show, because I do agree with you that courts can make intelligent decisions even under the pressure of an emergency and can therefore provide some kind of limit to craziness uh, that mm -hmm. does arise in an emergency situation. 
questions. But that's a good segue then to the maybe the primary question. And I think a lot of us would probably agree that we didn't pick um, massive stay-at-home and social distancing orders and business closures because it was the best response to a new pandemic. It's because we'd messed up everything else and lost the chance to do anything better. So now, hopefully, we bought time. The situation has changed. If courts decide to read your blog and appreciate, I think, your far better interpretation of Jacobson and the Fifth Circuit, what do you think it's going to look like? I mean, do do these people who think we've gone too far at this stage potentially start to have a case? What do you think the emerging law of limits on lockdowns is going to be? Well, I think, you know, that what, what I argue in the Harvard Law Review essay that's forthcoming uh, on their online forum and in another piece that's forthcoming in Law and Biosciences uh, is that the role of courts in a crisis, as in ordinary times, is to hold uh, the political branches to account for articulating their goals and for articulating how their chosen means will serve those goals. Now, I think both of those things are more controversial uh, as time goes on than they were in the early days of the crisis. I think it's it's a lot of us are assuming that the goal is very clear here to combat COVID-19, um, but there's actually there's some choices that leaders are making um, across the globe and across the United States between, for example, the goal of flattening the curve and staying within healthcare capacity for as long as possible in as many places as possible, or on the other hand, suppressing the curve as flat as possible for as long as possible. Well, you know, keeping it as far below healthcare capacity as possible. And those are those are different goals that require different uh, levels of intervention. So I think over time, if leaders are not transparent about their choice between those two options, uh, courts could play a role in essentially holding them to account for that, requiring them to articulate that choice. And that plays an important role because it facilitates political checks. You know, this is not a short-term crisis. I think it's really breaking through for, for everyone into the into our national consciousness that this is something we'll be dealing with in some form uh, during some times in some places for a period of years. And if that's the case, at a certain point, democratic deliberation has to play a role in the choice of goals. If our leaders don't clearly articulate their choice of goals, it's it's less there's less room for voters uh, to push back, uh, to say that those goals are not cautious enough or are too cautious. And, and that can be an unpredictable process, but the lack of transparency is not facilitating uh, that kind of deliberation over time. With respect to means, once that goal has been clearly articulated, then it's easier to understand okay, what level of reduction in contacts outside the household is necessary to achieve the, the state's uh, the state's goal? If that level of reduction is somewhere in the you know, 50 to 60 to 70 percent range, as for example, the, the Colorado governor has indicated, then that can be achieved while allowing certainly essential work and, and, and functions to happen. But it can also allow some level of non-essential economic activity, social, cultural activity, at that point, it becomes a collective action problem, though, to think through sort of how are we going to tailor these exemptions? How much um, overt defiance can we tolerate just because we can keep it within something that feels to me a lot like herd immunity, right? A herd immunity threshold that, that creates collective action problems. I think constitutional rights should play an important role in guiding those choices about 
what kinds of activities should be exempt while maintaining that reduction in, in, in social contacts and what kinds of activities can more easily be restricted. Say a little bit more about that. Are you suggesting that we might be, for example, in the First Amendment sense, going out of our way to make it possible for the free exercise of religion not to be in any way impaired? What about gun rights? What, what, are, the, what are the constitutional rights that you think are so important since it just can't be sort of general liberty to wander? Right. No, I think, you know, we have uh, modern constitutional doctrines that tell us, you know, and we may disagree with, with some of those doctrines in areas such as gun rights or for others in areas such as family planning or abortion services. But those doctrines establish a, a, a set of fundamental rights that have to be uh, acknowledged, that have to be accommodated within reason. So uh, I'm not saying that, 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 that they can't be infringed in any way. Our, none of our constitutional rights is absolute. Um, they are always balanced against pressing needs. But as we transition gradually over time, cautiously, not flipping a switch, but as we transition to a period where we could in some places ease from what is estimated to be something like an 80% reduction in contacts outside the household where we are now to something more like a 60% reduction or 40% reduction. I think the rights to, to access family planning, rights to peaceably protest, uh, rights to worship should be taken into account. And, you know, under our existing frameworks, that would also include the right to bear arms. But I think those have to be subject to constraints that are reasonable. So, so, uh, you know, although the opinion uh, was, I think, too flip and the language was too caustic, I actually think it's a reasonable accommodation to permit drive-in church services. I, I, I don't know that it's reasonable to say that that presents an undue risk. Um, You're talking about the Kentucky case? Yeah. And look, I understand that there, there's a lot of political posturing happening in that case. It's unclear whether they would really have been drive-in church services or whether the church would have defied those restrictions. But our rule that says, you can gather to worship while inside your cars, or you can gather to protest while inside your cars and maintaining physical distance uh, seems like an appropriate balance, uh, an appropriate way of striking the balance uh, between the risks and recognition of our rights to, uh, to peaceably assemble uh, and to worship. Okay, so as we come to the end, I, I maybe a quick summary and a last question. It seems to me that what we're talking about today has, has suggested that we expect the, the chaos and posturing between the federal and state governance to continue, but we also believe that, continue to believe that the actual law is that these are state decisions and that we expect courts will generally respect them if they, if either on a suspension model of civil liberties, but even if, if we're just talking about being reasonable and articulating reasonable goals in the face of uncertainty. Uh, so I want to give you a chance at the end to, you know, whether you want to opine or predict, we clearly have rapid change here. And uh, among the ways that the change may be rapid is, you know, that we could find that the 60 or 70 percent reduction to the degree that we mentioned isn't enough mm. and that we have fairly rapid re returns. Of course, we also have a problem that we may not know it because we lack the testing capacity, surveillance capacity. Um, but, you know, just yesterday, we there's been some discussion of a, of a, of a, of a semi-random study in, in Los Angeles that found that potentially the, the prevalence of infection was much higher than people thought in the population, and therefore also that the death rate might actually be ratcheting down closer to loop in LA. So, you know, we could have it that way too. And and courts are going to be confronting this evidence in these fights and, and potentially progressing ahead of the science. So I put it to you at the end, what's, what's next? 
What should we watch out for in the next couple of weeks in this area? What are the big potential stories? I think we're going to see eased restrictions retightened from place to place, from time to time. Again, I'll go back to this idea that it's really a ladder, that we uh, will ease up a level, ease back down a level um, over time in response to changing disease patterns. And some of that may be in response to eased restrictions, but it may also be in response to seasonality over time as well, and factors that are not politically determined. It's going to require an incredibly voluminous series of just constant choices and decisions. And so I think we're going to start to see uh, more and more conflicts, not just between state and federal levels, but between executives and legislatures. I think that's going to, over time, be a bigger part of this story. As you said, as between the federal executive and state executives, the governors clearly hold the reins right now under existing law, under their emergency powers for the most part, as well as some uh, some routine powers that they're exercising as well. But as the crisis wears on, uh, legislators are being called to weigh in. These protests are happening at state houses, not at governor's mansions, first and foremost. And that's because the state legislatures do have authority that varies from state to state, but to to step in and alter the executive's uh, choices. And I think that's what we're going to see more and more. The other thing I expect to see over time, but maybe a longer time horizon, is a return to this issue of travel restrictions, a return to travelers' quarantines in particular. We saw that early on uh, when it appeared that the outbreak was greatest in you know, the New York City metro area, in New Orleans, in Detroit. Uh, that issue has kind of quieted down for a bit now, um, but I expect it to come back. And, and even restrictions potentially within states uh, could become an issue. The White House guidelines, I think rightly, point out that restrictions can vary even from county to county. Within a state, uh, Missouri's governor has indicated that that's an approach he's interested in taking. And so I think we'll see as as information becomes more clear about the extent of community transmission and how it varies from time to time and place to place, uh, restrictions on on travelers, at least quarantines when, upon arrival, uh, will start to become a bigger issue. Well, we, we have plenty to talk about in future about that. I foresee some pretty uh, scary scenarios and the disparities that become uh, and their links to geography. So we'll, we'll, we will return to that. But meanwhile, I want to thank you for this. I think we can say that a lot of cooperation and a lot of good planning is going to be needed for this going up and down the ladder. We pray our leaders for less performing, more performance, and more of the cooperation that we need. Uh, it ain't been a good week for that, but there's always next week. Um, and there's always tomorrow um, when uh, public health law uh, briefing, COVID law briefing will discuss the abortion cases and the state-level restrictions on abortions in emergency orders with Maya Mannion, Seema Mohapatra, and Rachel Rebuche. All the COVID law briefings are available at the Week in Health Law podcast site, thanks to Professor Nick Terry, and at the Public Health Law Watch website as well. So please, uh, uh, your friends couldn't be here for noon. Tell them about this, this really great presentation today from Lindsay and urge them to find it at one of those other locations. Um, I'm Scott Burris uh, from the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. I want to thank everybody once again for participating and appearing, and we will see you tomorrow on COVID Law Briefing. Wash your hands.